Our sermon today is taken from Romans 7, verse 1 to 6. Here's the word of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, how lovely is your law, O Lord, that you speak to us and guide us with it. And Father, through this law, you communicate to us truths that surpasses our understanding and is unfathomable to us. But through your Holy Spirit, you are able to speak to us and that we are able to understand it, that we may know you and receive you as our Lord and Savior. So Lord, as your servant speaks today, may you speak through him, Lord, and may his word not be a hindrance to your truth, but help it for your glory and in your name we pray. Amen. So uh, one of the main ways we can interpret, misinterpret the teachings of the Bible is by falling to one of these two extremes. On the one hand, we have the hypergrace or antinomian extreme, whereby we're saying that God is so full of love and mercy that he'll forgive absolutely anything, which is in principle true, but it can be taken to a fault when it, this gives us a license to be casual about our sin. Right, believing that we can pretty much do whatever we want because there's always grace and God is going to forgive us. On the other hand, we have what we can call the hyperholiness or legalist extreme, whereby we are saying that God is so holy and his hatred for sin is so intense that he will not hesitate in punishing the guilty. Which is again, true in principle, but it's taken to a fault when we believe that following stricter rules and more religious is what is required to be loved by God and to escape his judgment leading us to believe that we need to earn God's favor through our good works, consequently allowing ourselves to be self-righteous and, at the same time, condescending to those who aren't trying as hard as we are. And I can say with confidence that the Bible pretty clearly t teaches us against these two extremes, right? So today, we're going to be continuing in our series in our book of Romans, and the passage that we're going to be studying today can give us some insight into how the gospel will actually exclude these two extremes. And let me just warn you that this passage could be pretty difficult to wrap our heads around, and I certainly found it a bit tricky when studying it. And part of the reason for that is that this is a part of the book of Romans where Paul transitions from one topic of the, in the book to another, right? So Paul is drawing on things that he'd been explaining previously, and then he's going to allude to things that he's going to elaborate upon more later on, right? Therefore, to understand what the text is saying, I think it's important for us to establish where we are in the book of Romans first. Right? So, Paul, in the first five chapters of the book of Romans, explained to us the human condition, right? how we're hopelessly trapped in our sins, that basic our human nature is this desire for sin, and at the same time, God has revealed to us his moral code through the law, 
And this law confirms to us that we are guilty sinners and are worthy of punishment. Right? But Paul tells us the good news, that God himself has taken the initiative to personally free us from our bondage to sin by taking for us the penalty for our sins on the cross. Then in chapter 6, we can see Paul trying to explain to us what happens to the human condition after we've been freed from our sins by Christ, right? That because of the work of Christ, there has been a change in our relationship with sin. And Paul illustrates this change using three analogies, right? First, he explained it in mortal terms, that being freed from sin means that we've died to sin and we've been made alive in Christ. So it would be contrary to our new nature of being alive in Christ to continue living in sin, and then Paul uh, explains this change in professional terms, right? That being freed from the slavery of sin means that we have changed masters, whereby we once were working um, on impurity and lawlessness for sin unto death, but now we are working on righteousness for God and unto eternal life. Now in our passage, Paul explains again this change in relationship, now describing it in marital terms. And in this particular section, Paul tells us two basic things that have changed after we've been freed from our sins, after we become Christians. So two points. Sorry, guys, this week you only get two. One, sin makes our relationship with the law toxic. And two, this relationship is healed by being married to Christ. Let me repeat that. One, sin makes our relationship with the law toxic. And two, this relationship is healed by being married to Christ. So, point one, sin makes our relationship with the law toxic. So let's take a look at verse one of this chapter, right? And notice that little but all-important word, or, right? Showing that what he's saying here is still part of what Paul was talking about in the passage that came before this. And what was he talking about then, right? He was in the middle of answering the question that he posed in verse 15. How the fact that we're no longer under the law but under grace does not mean we are free to be sinful. And if we recall our sermon last week, we discussed the first reason why this is so, why uh, being under grace actually means that God is our master. And since God has freed us from our sins and we are under grace, we're supposed to be done with serving our sinful passions and are now working willingly in obedience to God, our new master. Now, in this passage, Paul explores more what it means for us that we're no longer under the law. And notice here that Paul intentionally specifies who it is that he's speaking to. He says, brothers, those who know the law. And let's remember here the context of the book of Romans, right? That it was a church that was made of a mix of Christians with pagan backgrounds and Christians with Jewish backgrounds, right? And these Jewish Christians were being pretty judgmental to the non-Jews and thinking that they were better Christians because they observed all the commandments of the Torah the law that God gave the Jews through Moses, right? And, and guys, they tried hard, right? There were a lot of laws, like 613 of them. And so just so we're crystal clear here again, right? What Paul is calling the law in these verses is what God gave to Israel through Moses, the ethical code that Israel was supposed to live by as God's people. So after hearing what Paul just explained to them so far in the letter, that first of all, we're so sinful that it is impossible for us to fulfill the law, Secondly, that it's so bad that we can't ever be declared righteous even if we try to fulfill the law. And lastly, that Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law and we're released from his punishment, that it no longer threatens us. So these religious people who tried so hard to fulfill these laws would be understandably frustrated, right? And they would question, so what, was, like, what would even be the point of the law? 
Because after what Paul's been saying, it can really seem like having the law, having and living by this moral code, no longer really has a purpose. So Paul anticipates this concern that they may have and preemptively answers it by giving them a legal principle that they would be familiar with at the end of verse 1. That as long as, um, as, long as someone is alive, the law is binding to them. So in verses 2 and 3, Paul explains to them why he brought up this principle by using the case study of marriage, right? That according to the law, a woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. Meaning that through the law, a few things about the woman uh, are established. Her status as married is established. The man's relationship to her as uh, her husband is established. And her obligations as a wife is also established. And this legal arrangement is good for life. And also, through, through the law, the consequences of violating that relationship is also established, right? That's what Paul was getting at here in verse 3, that if this woman chooses to live with another man, this woman, by the letter of the law, right, according to the pre-existing bond of marriage that established her identity as a wife, would be condemned as an adulteress. So if she does live with another man, she will have to bear the legal consequences of breaking the law and be treated as an adulteress. So what Paul is trying to say here is that the law functions similarly in our bondage to sin. Just like how the woman is bound to her husband by the law of marriage, by the law, we're also similarly bound to our sin. Right? So because the law exists and we have sinned, our identity as sinners and our status as guilty is actually established through the law. Thus, by the law, we are also held accountable as sinners. Now, and this is what Paul explains later in verse 7 when he says that without the law, we would have not known sin. And Paul uses the sin of covetousness there for, uh, as an example. That without the law saying you shall not covet, you would have not even known what coveting even is. Not that coveting was not a sin before the existence of the law, right? Romans 5.13 clearly says that the sin was in the world before the law was given. And before we knew that coveting was a sin, we still suffered the logical consequences of that sin, right? Like, for example, we'd still feel constantly insecure, and there would still be jealousy that could fester and ultimately become hate towards others if we continued to covet. But since the law came, it made the fact that coveting is a sin officially and objectively true. And it's also now on record that we are guilty of the sin of coveting, and therefore we will be legally held accountable for this sin. And so maybe I'll give you an example to clarify this, that an example would be how drug laws became codified, right? So before 1914, cocaine was legal in the United States. But cocaine has always been destructive before it became, became illegal and people has already suffered because of its use, right? So there were already drug-related crimes and death. But when the law was codified in 1914, possession and use of cocaine was not only a harmful act, but a criminal act, you see. And from then on, it is beyond debate that cocaine is bad. And in addition to potentially damaging ourselves, we can also go to jail because it is now, according to the law, illegal, right? So the law holds us to this greater accountability to the sins that we commit, right? Through the law, sin is not only harmful anymore, but it is officially wrong. Are you following me? Right? And Paul goes further there in verse 5 when he elaborates on the relationship that we had with the law because of sin, right? Saying that our sinful desires are aroused, 
by the law, and it causes us to bear the fruit for death. Right? He says that when we were in the flesh, flesh here isn't talking about our physical bodies, right? But it is a term that Paul commonly uses to refer to our fallen human natures, right? Referring to our lifestyle before Christ that is characterized by being driven uh, by our sinful desires. So he's saying pre-Christ, we're still living according to our sinful desires, and we're unable to have a healthy relationship with the law. And Paul uh, shared this, his own experience to illustrate this later in verse 10 and 11 and what it means that, that uh, the law arouses the sin within us. When he says that sin seized the opportunity through the commandments or the law, deceived him, and killed him. So instead of being able to receive life through the commandments, it led him to death. Now, why is this so? Well, because in our sin, we can only react to the law in a very counterproductive fashion. Right? And, and this happens in one of either two ways, either being excited by the activity of sinning or by using the law as a means of self-righteous justification. So a great example of this uh, would, be, uh, would be this part in Augustine's Confession. Right? And for those of you guys who joined the last Paideia, you probably have read this part, right? where Augustine recalls when he was a boy, he joined his friends and stole some pears from someone's tree. But he didn't actually want the pears and ended up feeding the pears to the pigs, right? But Augustine did it simply because he wanted the thrill and pleasure that, that he can get from disobeying the law. And today's culture glorifies rebellion, doesn't it? Selling the idea that it's somehow fun or cool to be a bit rebellious and uh, non-conforming to the rules, right? The cool action hero is always the guy who doesn't play by the rules. And rebellion is thrilling for us because in our mind, it elevates us equal or even above the ones who made the rules. And rebellion against God is the most thrilling variety because you get to feel like we are equal to God, being able to, stand, to set the standard of good and evil for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, and isn't this, this prospect of wanting to be like God, the reason why Adam and Eve was able to be deceived in the garden and they ate the fruit that God explicitly told them not to eat. And the second way is by making the law the center of our lives, right? To the point where we think the law is the way in which we can determine our worth and find and receive fulfillment. So we end up building our identity based on the law, believing that we can be a good enough person if we try hard enough to fulfill it, that somehow we can prove our worthiness to God through our good works and religiousness. And this is also dangerous because what can end up happening is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are serving and loving God when in fact we are using the law to serve ourselves, right? Because we were really using the law to elevate ourselves and prove ourselves so that we can feel like we've justified ourselves and are now worthy of praise and even God's love and blessing. So, why we can't have like a healthy relationship with the law and like and relate to it in a life-giving way is because of the self-centered and constantly self-serving motivations of our hearts prior to Christ. Either by reacting to it in rebellion so that we can do our own thing or by using it to prove our own worthiness and value to others, to ourselves, and even to God. Right? And what th this really is, is the sin of self-righteous pride, isn't it? So having the law and knowing the law does not actually end up freeing us from sin, 
but it somehow activates the sinful natures within us and brings out more sins, right? Exposing to us our sinfulness and we, we, that we had more of than we thought. And what are the wages for this sin, Paul says? It's clear. 623, right? Death. Thus, in a paradoxical way, the more laws we get, the more guilty we actually become and we get closer to death. But don't get me wrong here, right? Um, the law is not bad, right? In fact, the law is actually very good and righteous because it reveals to us God's will. But the law never had the ability to change the human heart where the problem really is. So when, sin- when our sinful hearts relate to the law, the law ends up being like a mirror, right? Or even an Instagram filter that shows us how we should be, how our hearts should be, and then comparing it to how our hearts really are, right? Making our relationship with the law toxic. It's like being married to someone who would only love and accept us if we live up to their expectations of what they want in a spouse, not for the way we are. So what will end up happening is that this marriage will bring out the worst in us because we would either be constantly resisting and rebelling against expectations, refusing to change, making it a point uh, for them to accept us the way we are, increasingly growing resentful and angry, increasingly hardening our hearts towards our spouse and their expectations, and ultimately we'll certainly be hurt because we'll be constantly reminded that we're not good enough. Or we'll end up frantically trying to live up to these expectations, only feeling good about the relationship in the moments that we can live up to these expectations, then beating up ourselves when we eventually fail, making us constantly insecure and exhausted, worrying about messing up and making our spouse unhappy, leading to self-righteous entitlement when things are good, self-pity when they're not. And as you can imagine, this will be a pretty uncomfortable marriage, right? Loving our spouse will be increasingly harder. At the same time, will become harder to love. You see what I'm trying to say there? So, brothers and sisters, right, just to recap what we just said. When we were living in our flesh, according to our sinful desires, the law does two things for us. First, it confirms our status and guilt as sinners, right, holding us accountable to that status. And second, having moral rules through the law paradoxically leads our sinful hearts to more sins, making us more guilty. Because while these laws can condemn us, it does not actually fix the problem of the human heart. So what does? How do we get out of this toxic relationship? Which leads me to point two. So let's go back to the marriage analogy that started in verse 2 and 3, right? Paul compares the permanence of our bondage to sin to the lifelong permanence of the bondage to the law of marriage. So marriage is supposed to be till death do us part, right? So Paul points out that as long as both husband and wife are still alive, both are still bound to each other in this law of marriage. But say if the husband dies, then the woman is freed the law through his death, right? The marriage has been dissolved and she is released from her status as married and um, her identity as the wife of this guy who just died. And therefore, she is going to be free to be lawfully wed to another. So it's also the case with our bondage to sin. The only way for us to be legally free from my identity as sinners and our status as guilty is by dying to the law. 
And, and, and this is where the analogy is not perfectly parallel, right? Whereas with the woman, the husband is the one who died, so she can be free from her um, bondage for marriage. Whereas in verse 4, we see that we are the ones who actually died together with the body of Christ, such that we are freed from the law. Now, why is this death necessary in order to free us from the law? If we look back to chapter 6, verse 23, what does Paul say death is? It's the wages of sin, isn't it? So the only way we can stop being prosecuted by the law is if we get what we deserve for our sins, death. Right? And, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God came in human form and perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient to the Father from the day he was born until the day he was crucified for us. And on that cross, Jesus took on our wages, what we deserve for our sin, death. So he was our representative. And as he was nailed on the cross, our faith was united to him. So when he died, our old sinful selves died along with him, thus freeing us from the legal debt that would have cost us our lives to pay. So as Paul summarizes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, be it far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, when Jesus died for the sinfulness of this world that we were bound to and we were once a part of, we have also died to it. And now it is now dead to us. Amen? So Paul runs further, though, with this analogy, right? Saying that just as the woman was legally freed to be married to another man because of the death of her former husband, so too does our death frees us to belong to another, to the one who has been raised from the grave. See, so Paul uses the analogy of marriage to illustrate this new relationship that we're bound to, a marriage to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, isn't this a beautiful metaphor for the relationship that we have in Christ? Right? That being freed from the law means that we are free to be married to the one who truly and unconditionally loves and accepts us. Right? And, and this relationship then is not only going to be legal, but it's also going to be comprehensive and deeply personal. Right? And, and it changes everything. Because in this marriage to Christ, he loves us far more and is far more committed to us than we could ever be to him, right? Christ took on human flesh so that he can be with us and experience great, like, greater suffering than we ever will experience so that he can sympathize with us in every way. He adjusted to us, spoke in ways that we can understand. And Jesus, our husband, took the initiative going to the point of death so that he can marry us. And now he's preparing a home for us where we can be with him forever. And in the meantime, his spirit guides and protects us such that not a hair on our head can fall outside of his will. He is now ensuring that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Thus, through this marriage, we can find what is actually the only comfort that the Christian has in life and in death, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And just as we begin to understand and experience just how much Christ has loved us first, despite of our flaws, 
the only appropriate and rational response to this love is to love him back. And this entails adjustments to how we live, right? Because when we get married, no aspect of our lives are untouched. Everything changes. And it does mean that we lose a lot of freedom and independence. We don't get to live however we want anymore because we have a duty and obligation to the one who we're married to, right? But in a loving and healthy marriage, we wouldn't begrudge these sacrifices that we have to make in order to properly express our love to our spouse. Because while there is this loss of freedom that we have, this relationship with our spouse allows us to experience a kind of love, intimacy, acceptance, and security that we would not be able to experience on our own. And when we're bonded to someone um, in this marriage, this person becomes the most important person in our lives, doesn't they? Right? Therefore, the deepest desires of our spouse become something that's very important to us. And the process of growing together with our spouses includes this process of discovering what it is that brings her joy and participating in bringing them that joy. Hence, our lives changes, right? because now their joy and well-being becomes our joy and well-being. See, so this marriage, not o- in this marriage, we not only have a new source of comfort, but it also gives us new motives for living, to show love to Christ who loved us first. And as we seek to love Christ in this marriage, the result is that we will bear fruit to God. Now, what is this fruit? If we look back at chapter 6, verse 22, the fruit is what leads to sanctification. And what leads to sanctification? Righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 19. And what leads to righteousness? Obedience. Chapter 6, verse 16. And what it is do we obey? The law. Right? And why is it that we obey the law? Because the law reveals to us the will of God, the deepest desires of our spouse who loves us and who we are now motivated to love in this new marriage relationship. Right? So it goes full circle, right? Pre-Christ, we had to obey the law, but we didn't actually want to. In fact, we failed miserably to do so and such that we deserved the punishment of death. But Jesus died for us, took the punishment on the cross to free us from our sins, right? And in the process, we've also been crucified to the law such that it does not bind us to death anymore. And then Jesus took us as his bride and united himself to us in this union of marriage such that we're now motivated by our love for him. And the result is that now we love the law that once bound us to death and are willingly obedient to it because it teaches us how to love Christ. This is what verse 6 is talking about, right? When he says we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code, right? It doesn't mean that we're done with the Bible and now we're just listening mystically to the Holy Spirit somehow. Because right? in, more, in the Greek, more literally, it says in the newness of spirit, not oldness of letter. You see, when Paul says that we've been dead to the law and haven't been released from the law, it doesn't mean that we became free from the righteousness taught by the law. But it means that we're free from its rigid demands and from the curse which follows its demands, you see. Because the law still points us to the kind of life that is pleasing to God. But pre-Christ, it was our salvation system. And in a self-serving way, we sought justification through the law motivated by our fear of rejection from God. 
So before, we, try, we tried to obey it because we had to, but now we do because we want to. So the law is no longer just an old letter to us, right? Some external code that's written on a page, some obligations that promise rewards if they're met. Rather, we see the law for what it is, as spiritual, revealing to us the very character and desires of our husband who has quite literally loved us to death. So we have a new relationship with the law, a healed one, and all because the Spirit of God has changed us internally, does something to our hearts, such that our obedience is no longer by fear and determination of, of the will, but a surrender to the indwelling Spirit who allowed us to behold God's profound love for us, causing us to fall more deeply in love with Him, at the same time draining all motivation for the sin that grieves the one we love. Right? So how does Paul um, teach us that, that can prevent us from falling into antinomianism? antinomianism right? It doesn't matter if we sin or legalism, right? that we're saved by obeying the rules. It is by showing us that in Christ, what motivates us to obey the law is our grateful love for Him. That there is a more, and this, friends, is a more powerful and sustainable motivation than the fear legalism offers, and it undermines the selfish independence behind antinomianism. See, so, brothers and sisters, if you still feel like you have um, this toxic relationship with the law, right, that, that the weight of the requirements of God's law is still heavy upon you, and you still feel guilty, and you're still living in, in this fear of God's rejection, Rejoice, because if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then he has already loved you. In fact, he's married you, and now you belong to him. So these laws are no longer some burdens and obligations, but they're gracious guidance as to how to love him back. And yes, from time to time we will fail to do this, to love our spouse, and yes, it's going to be hard. And yes, we will have to make sacrifices to love Him properly. But be encouraged, friends. Jesus will honor this marriage and will never leave us. And every sacrifice we make will give us more of Him. So let's stop trying to earn God's love and to prove our worth before Him with our own strength. But let us surrender to the Spirit that He has given us and let him lead us right, by obeying what he says. And where will this obedience take us ultimately? To grow in our ability to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how glorious is the tr this truth, Lord, that you have taken us as your bride and that you have ensured with your life that we will be worthy as your bride. We are grateful, Lord, that you have freed us from the bondage of the law, but we are also grateful full for the law that you have given us, that we may know you, your character, and what it is that pleases you. Give us the strength, Lord, to be able to please you more and more, to become more like you, and to love you better, that we may understand, Lord, who you are and be in a deep relationship with you until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.